Please turn to Ephesians 2 and Titus 2. Okay, I want you to go in two places today. I want you to put a bulletin or a piece of paper in Titus 2. We're going to end there. We're going to start in Ephesians. And I want you in both places so that you're ready. Now, while you're turning, let me begin by just bringing greetings to you all from the brothers and sisters across town at Cornerstone Bible Church. All of us at Cornerstone love and appreciate Colonial so much. For those of you who didn't know it, Brent just told you, but Cornerstone is a church plant of Colonial that was had its first public worship service 17 years ago this month. That is hard to believe for some of us up here. But on behalf of Chris and Jordan and all the elders and the people of Cornerstone, thank you. We just want you to know how much we appreciate all that you have done for us over the past. Let me also quickly say thank you to Brent for giving me this opportunity to speak to you this morning. I do love Colonial. It has been like a second church home to me over the years, and I know so many of you, and it's always good to come and see your faces again. So Brent, Brent, thank you for letting me do this. Now, he already mentioned a little-known fact to a lot of people, and that, that is that Brent and I have known each other for a very long time. Way too long, he would probably say. We went to college together. And because I've known Brent for so long, I know some things about Brent that many of you don't. For example, did you know, this is why he said what he said a moment ago, did you know that Brent was once cast in a leading role for one of the greatest, most artistically creative movies ever written in the mighty metropolis of Dunbar, Wisconsin? (laughs) It's absolutely true. I actually still to this day have a copy of the script. It was called Star Wars. Goes up behind me here. The new rule, and as you can see in the top left, Brent was cast as one of our leading characters, Brent Vapor. Now, that was the 90s, so there was no vaping. There's no connection there. I mean, just made that very clear. (laughs) He had a deep voice, which is why we cast him in that particular role. You'll notice another colonial name on the list here. Tad Helm was one of our rent-a-troopers. And yours truly here with the face made for radio uh, was put behind the camera in the illustrious Lego filming crew. So that was a a mighty, a major motion picture that was supposed to be made. Alas, it never happened. The film never went to production, and so the world never got to see Brent starring in what would have been his lead and probably breakout role. And I don't know about you, but I mourn that just a little bit every day. So, as I said, thank you so much for letting me speak. Uh, by now, you should definitely have found both Ephesians 2 and Titus 2. That's good, because we're going to read Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, and then we are going to go to the Lord in prayer. If you will, please now look at verse 1. Paul writes, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we come now and we ask your blessing on our time together this morning in your word. May it be clear. Spirit, will you work? Will you give me the words to say? Will you open our ears and our hearts to hear and understand so that we can go out of here this morning and be the ministers of Jesus Christ that you have called us to be? May this church and your church around the globe embrace what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus. We ask that this morning in your son's name. Amen. Well, I had a big uh, birthday this year. I turned 40. Uh, Thank you very much. You know, uh, they say that the best years of a woman's life are the 10 years she spends between 39 and 40. But uh, men don't Men don't really get the opportunity to extend their 30s out quite so far. Men just sort of tumble right into the big 4-0, and before we know it, we're already beginning to feel its effects. For me so far, the biggest effect that I have felt as I've gotten older is the tendency to repeat myself a bit. It's not purposeful by any means. It's just that the more things I say and the older I get, the less capable I am of remembering what I've said to who. And so I find myself in a conversation often with someone, and I'm trying to remember, did I tell them this story? Did I say this thing to them before? And I can't remember, so I figure, hey, why not? You know, do it again. Just that way, if they heard it before, they'll just hear it a second time. My dad used to do this a lot to me. My dad had this tendency to share these little, not really proverbs, they were more like sayings or nuggets of of, uh, common sense And he would repeat them over and over and over to me. And he did this so much that I remember this one particular time he had done it. I don't remember what it was that he had said to me, but it just struck me wrong. I I was a teenager, so I'm foolish, and I just got aggravated and annoyed by it. And so I said to my father, no doubt, in a less than respectful way, Dad, why do you always say the same things over and over? You've said this a million times, right? That teenage hyperbole that we all did at one time or another. And while I don't remember what it was that led to that interchange, I will never forget my father's response. He said to me, yes, but I'm hoping that one of these times, what I say to you will stick. Well, here I am now at 40 years old, And I remember so many of those little sayings, and they have indeed been helpful to me as I've gotten older. Now, why did I tell you this? Well, this morning, I'm planning to repeat myself just a little bit, but I want you to know it's not because I've forgotten what I've said to you before. This time, it is purposeful and knowing. You see, it was about four years ago now that I was invited to speak here at Colonial during one of your missions conferences. I was honored to be on the stage with my dear friend and fellow college and seminary alumnus, Dan Seeley, as well as Kirk Leonard, someone who befriended me and discipled me when I interned here back in 1999. And it was a wonderful experience as vocational missionaries. Dan and Kirk's inclusion in the missions conference made complete and total sense. They were there to speak about the traditional idea of missions that so many of us have when we think about that particular subject, and they did a fantastic job with that. But my responsibility was just a little bit different. As a local pastor, I was asked to speak on sort of a concept of everyday missions, 
What does it mean to be a missionary right here where we live, where we work, where we we live our lives with others here in Hampton Roads? What does that mean for the average believer? And to teach on that subject, I took us to the passage that Paul read to us just a little bit earlier, Ephesians chapter 4. Now, since you're already in Ephesians 2, it's easy to turn the page over. I'm just going to remind you of the two verses that functioned as my point of emphasis that particular night. It was a Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Paul writes in verse 11, and he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And I want to begin our time together this morning by repeating a little bit of what I said that night here in Ephesians chapter 4, to use that as a springboard for the rest of our time together this morning. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12, Paul gives us what I believe to be one of the clearest, most succinct pictures of how a healthy, biblical, local church is supposed to function. And it all begins with Jesus. In verse 11, Jesus is the one giving gifts to his church. He's not giving them to people. He's giving gifts to his church. And these gifts are none other than these various roles of leadership and service within the church. Now, there's four of the gifts you see here. He gives apostles. He gives prophets. He gives evangelists. And he gives shepherd teachers. Those two words go together into this fourth role. And the people who fill these roles are given a very specific mission, a very specific task. They are, he says, to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So what is their job? Their job is equipping. It is coaching. It is training. It is teaching. It is leading. This is what they do. But, but here's what I need you to focus on this morning. More than anything else right here in this little time of introduction, notice who it is that Paul says is actually supposed to go out and do the ministry. It, because what he says here does not fit the typical American mindset related to ministry. What he says here does not fit the typical view of church and of vocation that most American believers have, whether they realize it or not. Who is supposed to go out and do the work of ministry? Well, it's not the apostles, and it's not the prophets, it's not the evangelists, and it certainly isn't the shepherd teachers. Who's supposed to go do the work of ministry? It is the saints. It's us. It's you and it's me, not these four roles. So in a healthy, biblical, local church, what you will find are pastors, shepherds, teachers, whichever term you like, equipping the saints to do the work of ministry and then get this, you will also find the saints actually going out and doing it. Doing ministry, being the ministers, because that's what they're supposed to do. You know, it's football season again. My fantasy team is not doing too well, but it's football season, so think of that as an example. You know, whose job is it to throw the pass, to run the ball, to block, to rush, etc.? It's not the coach's job. 
It's the player's job. The coach's responsibility is to equip them, to train them, to teach them, to lead them, but, but the players are the ones who are supposed to go out and do it. Likewise, ministry within a healthy, biblical, local church is supposed to work much the same way. And over the years at Cornerstone, this idea became sort of like, you know, my slogan, my uh, hobby horse, my theme, my mission. Like my dad, I even came up with a little saying to try to help people understand this concept and then go out and live it. And like my dad, I repeated it over and over and over and over again, both publicly and privately, hoping that maybe it would stick. And I shared that little saying with you all four years ago at the missions conference, but I want to repeat it again this morning. It goes something like this. Let's say I'm talking to you and I find out you're a policeman. I would say, hey, listen, you're not really a policeman. No, as a believer, you're, you're really a minister of Jesus Christ who just happens to be cleverly disguised as a policeman. Oh yeah, you put on the uniform and you wear the badge and you've got the vest and the gun. You even drive around in a car that says police on the side. It's a great disguise. But you're really a minister of Jesus Christ. Don't forget that. Or if I said it to a stay-at-home mom, I say, hey, listen, listen, you're not a stay-at-home mom, not really. You are really a minister of Jesus Christ who just happens to be cleverly disguised as a stay-at-home mom. You've got the minivan and three kids hanging off of you and everyone looks at you and just thinks mom but you're really a minister. Don't forget who you are. If you're a sailor, hey, you're not really in the Navy. You're really a minister of Jesus Christ, just cleverly disguised as someone in the Navy. Hey, retirees in the room, you're not really a retiree. (laughs) You're really a minister of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a a retiree. Hey, high school students, teenagers, you're not really just a student. You're really a minister of Jesus Christ, cleverly disguised as a student. See, the, the beauty of that little saying is that it works for every single occupation out there except for vocational ministers, right? Pastors, missionaries, they're not very cleverly disguised. Everybody looks at them and thinks minister. So it doesn't work for them. But for the rest of us, we we get to be like secret agents, all right? We've infiltrated offices and ships and warehouses and homes and families and neighborhoods. We are everywhere. And when you begin to think like this, to really embrace this idea, you begin to get the sense that, you know what, it doesn't really matter what it is I do because it's not who I am. It doesn't change who I truly are in the the inner parts. I am a minister of Jesus Christ, period. Therefore, guess what we all should go do? We should all go minister. So this is what I preached to you four years ago. It was simply a challenge to you as saints to go out and do the work of ministry that you have been called to do. Now, here's where I want to build off of that sermon this morning. Because whether you were here uh, four years ago and you happen to remember that, which I would be shocked by, but let's just say you do, um, or whether you were here, you forgot, or maybe you just weren't here, all of this sounds brand new to you. If you've heard what I've said just up to this point, and you can see the truth of it, whether or not you fully have embraced it personally, perhaps this question is going through your mind because it tends to be the number one question that people have whenever I would talk to them about this. The question would be, how? All right, so how? How how am I supposed to go out and minister? 
What am I supposed to do? What does this mean for me? And often, not always, but often those questions were driven by one of two things, either A, just some personal fear or um, insecurity that someone might have about their own readiness or ability, or more often, it was driven by B, a misunderstanding of what ministry truly is. Because for far too many American Christians, ministry is something that either, number one, happens on Sundays only, (laughs) number two, has to happen in a church building, or number three, is defined by the work responsibilities of a vocational minister such as a pastor. We're talking about things like preaching, teaching, counseling, etc., Those things define ministry for a lot of people. And so when I say to them, hey, listen, you're a minister. You need to go out and do ministry. They think, okay, what that means is I need to uh, volunteer for another slot in Awana. Or maybe I need to, to teach a Sunday school class or something like that. And I'd say, no, 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 no. That's not what I mean. Don't get me wrong, you might need to do those things, okay? Perhaps those are needed and you need to fill those those roles, but that's not exactly what I'm referring to. When I say to you that I want you to go out and be a minister, I am not primarily talking about Sundays. I am not primarily talking about things that happen at this building. I'm talking about tomorrow when you go to work. I'm talking about tomorrow when you get up with your family. That's where I want you to go out and be a minister. And so we come back to the question, how? How do you do that? Where do you begin? And this is why we've turned to Ephesians chapter 2. If you turn back there, and I'm, I'm thinking through the question, how, how do you do this? You know, there's a number of different ways that I could answer that question, right? Of how you go minister. There's a number of different ways I could do it. But I certainly don't have time for all of them this morning. So I'm just going to pick one that I feel is often overlooked in this conversation, and you find it here in Ephesians 2. Now, as you can see, if you look at your text, Ephesians 2 begins by reminding us of who we are, or excuse me, were. And, And it's a pretty bleak picture of who we were. Paul tells us that we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. In other words, in which we once lived our normal, everyday lives. Typically, when you see the word walk used this way, that's what he's talking about, how you lived your life. We used to live our life in the deadness of our sins. He says we were following the course of this world. He says we were following the prince of the power of the air, that Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. He says that we lived in the passions of our flesh, that we carried out the desires, the sinful desires, mind you, of the body and the mind, and that we were by nature... Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. As I said, Paul's painting a pretty bleak picture of who we were. We were sinners completely deserving of God's righteous anger, his wrath. That's who we were. But, as you can see, something changed. Because God, who is, Paul says, rich in mercy who loved us with a great love, even even when we were still living our lives in a manner that was completely and rightfully deserving of his wrath, even then he made us alive together with Christ. 
And then here are the words that should jump out at you in Ephesians 2, by grace. This happened by grace. He made us alive by grace. He raised us up with him by grace. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus by grace. And all of it, he says, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in and through us. In other words, for the rest of eternity, we are going to function almost like little trophies of God's grace. Like when he wants to highlight everything he's ever made, you want to know how gracious and merciful and loving and kind I am? You want to know? Look at him. <laughs> look at, look at Stacy Potts. This is how merciful I am, how gracious, because he was dead in his sins. He walked in them. He loved them. And I showed him great grace. So when he wants to show that, he's simply going to point to us, to the people who deserved his wrath, but who received his grace through Jesus Christ. We will show this for all eternity, which then, if you, follow me, if you followed me up to this point, then presents to you or explains to you the context of these two verses that so many of us know so well. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. All Paul is doing here is continuing his focus on grace. It's like he can't get off of it. It's like he can't stop talking about the great grace that we have been shown. He just wants it to be crystal clear that your salvation is because of God's grace and God's grace alone. It came through faith. That wasn't your doing. It was the gift of God. It's not a result of works. And he is not going to share his glory with a single one of us. Not a one. You're not going to get any credit. There is no sense in which you can boast and say, I am here because I fill in the blank. No sense of that whatsoever. As I said, these are very well-known verses, but unfortunately, most of us stop right there. But I just want you to notice verse 10 now. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, and let's pause and recognize that at this moment, Paul could have been inspired by the Holy Spirit to say anything the Spirit wanted. We, we are, you know, he's going to tell us here in just a second, why has God shown us this great incredible grace. What is it exactly that, that God wants us to do in light of this grace? And he could have said a number of things. He said, could have said, you know, you've been, uh, you're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for evangelism. Hey, you're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for Bible reading, for prayer, for whatever. But notice what he says. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Whoa, like, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. Good, good, we were created in Christ Jesus for good work. Really? Yeah. Really? That's what he says. And then, as if that's not like earth-shattering enough of a thought to think about, he kind of takes it to another level. He says not only were we created in Christ Jesus for these good works, but he says that God prepared these good works for us beforehand 
that we should walk in them. So just like we used to walk, we used to live our normal, everyday lives in the deadness of our trespasses and sins, now he's telling us that we are supposed to walk, to live our normal, everyday lives in good works. In fact, he says he even prepared them beforehand for us. I mean, this is, this is incredible information. We are not saved by good works, not at all. We are not going to boast before God. We won't, he won't share his glory with us. But the intention is that salvation by grace should lead us to go out and live in them. Now, I should pause at this point and note a reality that many of us in this room share. As evangelical, Bible-believing, Protestant Christians, many of us have an automatic um, theological allergic reaction whenever we hear someone start talking about good works. And that is not an unfounded reaction because for many people in the world around us, good works becomes in some way, shape, or form a gospel substitute. A lot of people think that the gospel is based on good works as if God has like a a pair of cosmic scales in heaven and he's going to weigh the good you've done versus the bad you've done. And as long as the good outweighs the bad, you're going to be just fine. That is a lie. It's a lie. It's not true at all. And Paul just made that clear in Ephesians 2, so I don't need to develop that. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. It is not according to your works. In any gospel that bases your understanding of your own righteousness and acceptance with God on your works is going to lead you to hell. Others confuse the gospel for good works. They think that the gospel is just about going and doing good. So all they want to do is go out and feed the poor or open an orphanage or a hospital. And these are all good things, things that believers should be doing. But as good as those things are, they are not the gospel. Because the gospel is, first and foremost, a message, a message of sin and salvation. It is not simply about showing kindness. That would be a lie. The gospel is the good news that Christ the Messiah came and died for our sins in our place according to the scriptures that he was buried and that he rose again the third day in accordance with the scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15. This is the message of the gospel. So do not confuse the message of the gospel with the doing of good works. They are not the same thing. But because so many people around us either base their understanding of the gospel on good works or they outright confuse the gospel with good works, many evangelical, Bible-believing Protestants have developed, like I said, almost like a theological allergy to the idea of even talking about this particular subject. But I'm here to say to you today, A, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, okay? Don't. Just because others abuse it and confuse it doesn't mean that you should ignore it. If anything, it's time for us as the church to reclaim a biblical view of good works, a gospel-centered view you know, of good works. I use the phrase gospel-centered view here. I, I am, um, as anyone knows, I'm not very cool. I'm, a, I'm the least trendy person you will ever meet. And in the past few years, five, ten years uh, uh, within the church, 
there's been a big emphasis on gospel-centered ministry, and it has been wonderful. I 110% agree with it. The one part of it that's aggravated me, though, is the tendency that people have to feel the need to put the word gospel in front of everything now. So it's like I can't just read a book. i got to read a gospel book, and I can't just sing a song. I have to sing a gospel song. I can't just eat cereal. I have to eat gospel cereal. And it's like, where does it end kind of thing? Here, here is one time I actually think maybe it helps. We don't want to just do good works, folks. We want to do gospel good works. We want to go out and do good works that are driven by the gospel. So just because others have have messed up this idea, do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. That was A, and then here's B. Understand that the doing of good works is one of the God-ordained ministries that he has given to each and every one of us as believers. I mean, he said, Paul says it. It's not my comment, it's his. He has prepared these good works beforehand that we would go out and live our normal, everyday life, Monday to Sunday, in them. So when it comes to answering the question, how do you know, I go out and be a minister? What, was that, what would that look like for me? What, regardless of what it is you do for a living, what is that going to look like? I'm going to tell you that at least one of the answers, perhaps the lowest of the low-hanging fruit that I can give you this morning, is this one right here, to go do good works. Is that all you should be doing as a minister? No, but it is part of what you should be doing. And once you begin to see this idea, If you can get your eyes kind of like open to the concept that I'm trying to help you understand this morning of what it means to go out and be missionaries here in Hampton Roads, once you begin to see this idea, you're going to begin seeing it all over the New Testament because it's everywhere. So this is why I asked you to turn to Titus 2. Flip over to that one now. In Titus 2, this is Paul's short little letter to one of his co-workers, Titus. He brings this topic of doing good works up over and over again, so much so that you really begin to get the sense of, wow, this must be be pretty important in the Christian life. Maybe maybe I should start to pay attention to this a little more, to, to being this minister that God has called me to be in this specific way. For example, look at chapter 2, verse 7. Paul says to Titus directly, hey, Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So as a pastor, Titus is to model a life of what it means to do good works, gospel good works before his people. He is to serve as an example of what that looks like in real life. And I would argue that this is one of the aspects of a pastor's responsibility in equipping their people to model this and to teach them that this is what it looks like in your life on a day-by-day basis. This is what it looks like. So to all the vocational ministers in the room this morning, either here at Colonial or from wherever else you may be, I exhort you, be models of good works before your people to the saints entrusted to your care. Show them what it means to live out a life of good works as an outflow of the gospel's effect in your life, as an example of the grace of God shown to you. Uh, Next, look down at chapter 2, verse 14. He tells them that Jesus gave himself for us, the gospel, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? 
who are zealous for good works. Zealous. You ever wake up and you're like, man, I am so zealous to go do some good works today? I'm guessing not. Not for many of us anyway. Not regularly. But this is what he says is part of why Jesus gave himself for us. Think about that. He He sacrificed his own life on the cross because he wanted you and I to go out and be zealous for good works. That's an amazing concept. It's incredible. Look look at chapter 3, verse 1. Paul commands Titus to remind his people to, among other incredibly important things, to be ready for every good work. Just be ready. Like all the time, okay? <laughs> when you wake up in the morning, do you go to bed at night, you just need to be ready. Kind of like you need to be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. You need to be ready for good works too. Just like, I can do it right now. What do you need? I can do it. I'm on it. You, you, you're ready. So, so we're supposed to be always looking to recognize and engage in good works. We're supposed to be ready for this as a minister of Jesus Christ. Finally, look at chapter 3, verses 8 and 14. Same comment made in both verses. Two times, Paul tells us that we're supposed to be devoting ourselves to good works. And that word devote here is interesting because it has the idea of purposeful planning. As if, like, you know, you sat down and you had a piece of paper and a pen and you're asking yourself the question, okay, what good work am I going to do and how am I going to do it? How much is it going to cost? Who do I need to get to help me? What logistics need? I'm like, you're like gonna, you're gonna plan it like you're gonna build something or like you're gonna wage war or do anything else in life that requires planning. You're gonna devote yourself to this thing. So, you know, what that tells me then is, you know, our pursuit of good works aren't supposed to just be, well, as I hear about them, I'll do them. Or, or you know, as it comes up in front of me kind of things. No, there's a sense of mission, of mission that gets associated with this idea of going out and doing good as a response to the gospel. And remember, this is just what Paul is saying to Titus. You know, we could have turned to Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul says to the Galatians, as we have opportunity, we're supposed to do good to everyone and especially to those who are fellow believers, or James chapter 2. I mean, wow, right? James 2, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have work? Can that faith save him? And he begins to develop that idea from there, and on and on and on we could go. A zealous, purposeful pursuit of good works that is meant to be a reflection of and response to the gospel, not a replacement of it, is one of the easiest ways for you and I to go out and be the ministers of Jesus Christ that we truly are. Now, let me make a couple of practical applications from this and then we'll be done. What exactly are good works? kind of a big question, isn't it, that I have purposefully not answered up to this point. I don't know if you noticed that. There is no single biblical definition that I really could give you for how to define a good work, but biblically speaking, I can give you a range of definition. Are you ready for this? This is going to blow your mind, so get ready. In Matthew chapter 10, 
Verse 42, Jesus says to his disciples, and whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. In John 15, 13, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. So if I understand those two statements correctly, what that means is you have a range of options for doing good that stretches from water to death. Okay? You can give water to people and you can lay down your life for them. That's a pretty broad range. All right? You've got a lot of, of, of flexibility, of leeway in there to go out and creatively do good to all of those around you. So, so go do it. Go be creative. God made you in his image. And one of those aspects is that we are creative. So go use your creativity to do good to everyone. To be the hands and feet of Jesus wherever he has placed you. What you can do and what I can do may not be the same thing. And guess what? That's wonderful. That's how it's supposed to be. That's why we are a body. So go out and do whatever it is God has put in front of you. You've got a lot of range, a lot of leeway. Take advantage of it. Second question, you might be thinking, you know, Stacy, where would I start? Where, where would I begin this? If I really wanted to, you know, to embrace this identity as a minister, how would I take that then and begin to go? Well, you know, I, I'd suggest maybe you just start here at Colonial. With, with the people sitting to your right or to your left or in front of you or behind you. And just mention Paul's instructions to the Galatians in Galatians 6. He said, do good to everyone, but especially to those of the household of faith. Especially to the fellow believers. Do it, do it to everyone, but especially to them. So maybe, maybe you start here. You know, the, the, the question I think of at this moment is, what are the time, talent, and treasure pieces that God has given to me that I can go take and use for him? What, what time can I give to something? And again, I'm, I can be creative and use that however I want, but what talents do I have that I can take and employ? What, what treasures do I need to give up or invest in the lives of others? What needs can I meet? What opportunities can I pursue? And you say, Stacy, I just, you know, you're saying all this. These are great questions. I still don't know. Okay, well, then how about this? And I'm not picking on you here. First of all, let me just, can I exhort you? If you still don't know, can I exhort you to just maybe begin paying better attention to the people around you? Because I don't have to know a single person in this room, and I can guarantee you there are tons of needs in here. There are physical needs, there are spiritual needs. There's marriage needs, there's parenting needs, there's job needs, there's needs all around you. And so if you're not aware of what those needs are, maybe you just, maybe you've just not trained yourself to be looking. Or worse yet, maybe you've trained yourself to look away. So just, just look, they're there, I promise you, devote yourself to looking for them and you will begin to see them everywhere. Secondly, then, when you do see them, get ready, don't call the church office, right? Don't call them, at least not first anyway. You go minister. You go do it. 
You go take a stab at it. You think pastors know everything? They don't. <laughs> Half the time, we're figuring it out as we're going, right? I mean, we don't know. You go do it. And if you're scared to do it by yourself, well, then call someone in your ABS class or bring a friend along. And the two of you or the three or the four or whatever, go minister. Make it a team effort and you all learn together. Go minister. I used to have another little saying over the years at Cornerstone. I said the best problems the church had were the ones that the pastors never heard about. And it was true. I'd be in conversations with somebody every now and then, and, and we'd be talking, and they'd say, like, yeah, a few years back, I went through this, you know, personal struggle, sin struggle, a marriage struggle, or whatever, job problem, sickness. And I was like, really? I never knew. And they're like, oh, yeah, well, so-and-so came and helped, and they, would like, really walked that path with us, and it was wonderful. And they, 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 they just served us so well. And I was like, praise God, right? Praise God. That's exactly what you want to see is the people of God coming in and being the ministers of Jesus Christ that they truly are. So where do you start? Start here. Start right around you. If you see an opportunity to do good, do it. If you need help, go to your pastors. They're here to equip you, please. But, but take the initiative yourself. Devote yourself to this. Strategize about how you're going to use the time, talents, and treasures God has given you for his good. And I promise you, the outcome will amaze you. You know, in the letter uh, to the Galatians, Paul talks a lot about this idea of freedom. It's one of the major themes of that particular book. And for most people, when you talk to them about freedom, they instantly think of freedom from, okay? In Christ, we have the freedom from, and namely sin is the thing that they would point to, and that's obviously true. But there is also a sense in which we experience freedom to as well. Not just freedom from, but freedom to. And in discussing that particular point, E.J. Epp, an author, he says it like this. He says, the implications of this Christian freedom, as Paul develops it, are vast and far-reaching, but essentially, he sees freedom as a reality affected in and through the Christ event, which has broken the power of sin and neutralized the individual hostility against God, which at the same time has covered the guilt and stain of sin and erased the past, which has crushed all enslavement to self, to religious convention, to the present powers of evil and to cosmic forces, and which has triumphed over every force that dominates humankind, including human mortality itself. And we all say, yes, amen. But, he continues, this is only one side of the Pauline coin. The freedom from what side. There is also the significant freedom for what side. And this many faceted emphasis in Paul, though it can be simply stated, is infinitely complex in its outworking. Are you ready? A Christian is now free to obey God in a radical fashion by serving his fellow human beings in selfless love. Let me say that again. A Christian is now free to obey God in a radical fashion by serving his fellow human beings in selfless love. And this week, that's what I want you to go out and do. 
I want you to go out and be free like that, to go out and obey God, not just by what you fight against, that's important, keep doing it, but also by what you fight for. So go out and obey him in this kind of radical way. Obey him by serving those around you, your family, your friends, fellow believers, anyone. Obey God by serving them in this selfless kind of love. Go live in that freedom and be the ministers of Jesus Christ that you already are. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, we come and we just confess to you our selfishness. It is so easy for us to live our lives in a completely self-focused kind of way, to always be thinking inward and, and creating this dividing wall between our sacred and secular lives as if the gospel hasn't come to bear on every aspect of life. As if somehow because of maybe what we do, we're off the hook to be ministers, but we're not. We are the ones that you have called to go out and do the work of ministry so that the body of Christ is built up. And I pray this morning, Lord, that we will be convicted of that, reminded of it, and that we will recommit ourselves to go out and do it. And as we do, Lord, I know it's hard. It's hard for some of us, particularly because it's scary sometimes, and maybe these ideas aren't well-formed in our own hearts and minds. And so I pray, Lord, that we will take just this simple concept, just a, a simple step of obedience, of doing good, not so that we can be accepted by you, but because we have been accepted by you. Help us to go out and do good to everyone that you bring across our path this week. Help us to understand the concept of divine appointments, to recognize that this week you already know it. You know what's coming. You know the good. You know the bad. You know, the meetings, the issues, the phone calls. Cause us to go into all of this this week with this ministry mindset that says no matter what, we are going to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the believers and unbelievers that you put in our path. That we're going to show just a snippet of the grace and mercy, kindness and love that you have shown to us. May we give of ourselves and make ourselves nothing because you, Jesus, did this for us. We ask all of this in your precious name.